Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services all across the country. I'm your host this week, Richie Plush. I'm excited because we had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. V. Mark Durand. And for those of you who don't know V. Mark Durand, he has an extensive uh, history in terms of publications and research, but he is a distinguished university professor of psychology at the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg. He has more than 135 publications on various topics. His books include textbooks on abnormal psychology that have been translated in multiple languages and are used uh, at universities across the world. Most recently, he developed a new approach to help families working with children with autism. It's called Optimistic Parenting. So I hope you enjoy our conversation this week with Dr. V. Mark Durand. Thank you, Dr. Durand, for joining our episode this week. It's great to have you with us. It's my pleasure. So uh, what led to the, for you to coin the term optimistic parenting? Well, let me give you some background. Um, Great. Early in my, my career, I uh, developed treatments for behavior problems in kids with autism and related disorders. And um, we were very successful. It's called functional communication training. And fortunately, a number of I think a few people colleagues... have heard of that. Okay, good. <laughs> um, Great. And a number of my colleagues um, started replicating it, and that was good. But I also, um, I always learn more from my failures than my successes. And so a number of people that I work with weren't doing it. They weren't really following through with the plans. So we wanted to figure out um, what was going on and also how we could predict which children would uh, get better or worse over time. So we did um, a study that we looked at um, about 128 children between the ages of three and six, looked at their behavior problems and looked at things like family stress, um, the child's behavior, um, severity of the child's behavior problems, things like that. And we followed them up for three years, and we wanted to see what would predict the children that would get better uh, over time and children that would get worse over time. And the best predictor of children that would get worse over time was parental pessimism. And what I mean by that is if at age three a parent had already started giving up, so they you know, let them wear the same shirt every day to go to school, or they uh, let them eat on the floor in front of the television because it was easier and they wouldn't scream, or they would drive to the store the same way every time because the child would get up if it, it or get upset if they didn't go the same way. And so what we looked at then is, well, what's going on here and how come this is happening? So we started um, doing research on this pessimism and to see if we could make them more optimistic. Um, And we'll talk about this later, but there's a number of themes that pessimistic parents um, think about. And so we went and looked at cognitive behavior therapy to see could we add cognitive behavior therapy to functional communication training and would we get better outcomes with parents follow through so that's where the optimism came from 
Well, I mean, that's got to be one of those moments that is kind of a shocking discovery, right? It doesn't sound like that's what you were necessarily looking for. But was that kind of surprise? Was that a surprise to find that, or were you expecting something totally different in that original study? Well, what I expected was uh, communication skills would be the best predictor, because hmm. when, when we did functional communication training, what we do is teach the child how to get their wants and needs met. And I suspected if a child was good at that already, that they would just be better. They they could get their wants and needs met. And children who couldn't do that would be worse. But that wasn't the best predictor. Um, The best predictor was this pessimism. And pessimism here means that the parent was usually pessimistic about their own ability to help their child or pessimistic about various aspects of the child, including having a disorder. So we would get parents who would say, well, he can't do that because he's got autism. And that's pessimism, um, as opposed to a parent who kind of looks at their child and says, all right, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep trying this. That's optimism. And so that's why we started to look at could we uh, do this. But, yeah, it was a surprise. I really thought um, it would either be communication skills or it would be the severity of the behavior problem at age three. Because in psychology, Mm -hmm. we always say if you want to predict future behavior, look at past behavior. So Mm -hmm. if the kids who were more serious they would be the ones that would be more serious later on. But that wasn't true. Um, we had kids who were pretty pretty difficult, but they had optimistic parents who would push through and try to teach their kids skills, try to uh, follow through on behavioral interventions, and they were doing better. It's so fascinating how you, in some ways you almost stumbled across this, and then it sort of sparked a series of research projects for you on these particular topics. Is that right? That's true. The biggest one was this uh, longitudinal multi-site randomized clinical trial where we took parents who were pessimistic, and that was difficult because we had parents who were optimistic but had difficult children, and we couldn't include them in the study. Uh, So we took parents who had pessimism, had a child between the ages of three and six, had some kind of developmental disorder, had severe, severe behavior problems. And so we uh, randomly assigned them to two groups. One group got behavioral intervention alone, and the other group got behavioral intervention but cognitive behavior therapy on top of it. So we wanted to Mm -hmm. see could we make these parents, and there's research in depression field that's um, called optimism therapy. Um, So we wanted to see could we add optimism therapy to the second group and would, would we have better outcomes? And what's interesting, and you mentioned being surprised, was when we looked at the outcomes, the outcomes uh, from both groups were positive. So both groups, the children were doing better post-intervention, and we also followed them up at a year later. And when we looked at um, the two groups, what we found was the parents were reporting that the kids who were in the um, group with optimism training, uh, the parents were saying they were doing much better than the other group. But when we looked at their actual behaviors, the behaviors were about the same. And it took us a while to kind of sit down and think that through. And then we figured out uh, what we were seeing was parents that didn't get optimism training were conceding to their child's behavior. 
So, um, for example, I, we have some video of a mom who is having trouble putting her child to bed. The child is screaming, fighting. Um, we taught her some skills about how to uh, work with sleep. When we came back, she was reporting correctly that the child was much better at bedtime. But what she did was not what we taught her. What she did was get in bed with him and turn the TV on and wait for him to fall asleep. And that's not mm. what we wanted to happen. So, and, but with the other group, they would push. So we had this mom who had a child who was, she was trying to get him to put his toys away or get dressed, and he would wriggle out of it and fight. And so when we came back after the treatment, what we saw was she followed through on the plans, and she was persistent. So he walked out of the room at one point in time to put his toys away, and she just waited, called him back in the room, and made him put his toys away, and he did it easily. And so that was the difference. She persisted. She didn't concede to him. She didn't say, oh, well, he's not in the room. I'll just put his toys away for him. She waited and and persisted, and that's what we were wanting to do. So that was the, the surprise. The surprise wasn't that the other group, the kids were much better behaved. The surprise was how they were much better behaved, and it was because how the parents were. persisted. That's a great, I mean, that's a great visual or a great, um, I guess, analogy, really, that, that optimism in a lot of ways is really that persistence and that follow-through, which can be so hard for parents on any given day given a multitude of factors, right? Um, right. So what are some things that you found um, that most often get in the way of parents having really this optimism? Well, one of them I, I mentioned before was this belief that my child disorder um, means that they can't behave better. So we've had mm-hmm. um, we've done research on sleep too, and you know we work with the parents and they they try a program and it doesn't work immediately, and they say, "See, I knew it wasn't going to work because right. they have autism." And you know that's you know child efficacy is what it's called. Basically, the child is not capable of doing this. But then there's also self-efficacy, and that's your belief in yourself that you can do this. And there are a number of things um, that, and when we interviewed all the parents who were um, pessimistic, there were a number of themes that came out that not all parents had the same themes, but it was a group of themes that followed through on this pessimistic style. And one of the styles, um, pessimistic attributional style, is things will never get better. So this will always be the same. Um, I worked with a parent on a sleep problem again, and she had a whole week where her child went to bed fine, didn't get up in the middle of the night. And I was talking to her, and I was congratulating her. She followed through on the plan. It was great. And the mom just blurts out, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, if my child can't sleep, um, she won't be able to go to friend's house. She won't be able to sleep over at grandmother's house. And she had it in her mind that this is always going to be a problem. And even though faced with a week of good sleeping, she thought it was just a phase. She didn't attribute it to her plan. She thought it was just a phase. So there are a number of thoughts um, that parents have who are pessimistic. Um, one mom, we, um, on the flip side, we often ask parents in the study to give us an example of a problem you had this week and give us an example of a success. And so this one mom, she said, well, 
I was trying to put, you know, get my son to get in the bathtub, and, you know, that's usually a problem. And she started saying, you know, I don't know why I'm the one that always has to give the bath. That's one of the themes. Why, is my, why am I responsible? She always, the other thing she said was, um, you know, that he, he likes going to the pool, and I don't understand why he doesn't like getting in the bath. And then I don't like understand why he doesn't want to get out of the bath. So when, as we pressed her, what we find out was she, that one example she gave us, he actually got in the bath fine. Then he got out of the bath fine. And we said, well, why did you say that was a problem? And she said, I don't even recognize that that was a success. She was still busy thinking, why do I always have to do this? Why is this my fault, you know, my job? Why does it give me such a hard time? And all these thoughts got in the way of her seeing that this was actually a success. And then she realized, and I didn't reinforce her because I wasn't paying attention. And so we, we try to get parents to be mindful. So be mindful right. of tantrums. And um, I'll bring this up in a second, but also be mindful of the successes. Because what happens is when your child is behaving well, you're thinking something else. You're doing something else. It's like, I have this 10 minutes, and I'm going to now make dinner, or I'm going to go make a phone call, or I'm going to go do something, make lunch for tomorrow, and they're not reinforcing. And we've always, you know, you know for years have told people, catch them being good. Yeah. And the reason why they don't catch them being good is because when they're good, you're thinking about something else. That makes such sense. I mean, I'm thinking about my time as a clinician and the times I've spent working with families, and it's so easy for them to pay attention to, for example, you brought up tantrums because they're loud and they're in, you know, they may include property destruction or throwing or self-harm or all sorts of other, you know, behaviors that go along with it that very much call your attention. You can't, it's really hard to be on the phone in the middle of that. But when they're, when our clients or our children are quiet, that's the opportunity to say, oh, I've been thinking about this other thing all day. Now I have 10 minutes to do it, whether, you know, to your examples, dinner, phone call, pay the electric bill online, whatever it may be. It's nice to have that five minutes and you don't think about that. Um, it's a good reminder of us to, you know, to your point, catch our, our sons and daughters and catch our clients being good because we often overlook that. Yeah, I, I was in the park the other day and I was sitting on a bench and I saw a mom with her young daughter walking along, and the mom was on the phone. And, you know, they're out for a nice walk, and the little girl goes, Mom, look, a bug. And the mom looks down, and she goes, oh, that's nice. And then the little girl goes, look, Mom, it's a green bug. And the mom looks down, that's nice, and goes back on the phone with her friend. And she goes, look, it's a pretty green bug. And she goes, that's nice. And the daughter then hit her, hit her in the leg. And the mother put the phone down, I'll have to call you back, and she said, why did you hit me? And I wanted to stand up and say, I know. Because <laughs> you weren't paying any attention to her. Because you weren't giving attention. Yeah. And, right. and so that's what happens. It's like she was fine, and so she was being ignored. If she hit her, then she got all the attention she wanted. Um, and right. that, over time, obviously, can lead to more behavior problems. So I have a follow-up question. I'm curious about this, this group that got the CBT training. They also had this you know, optimistic approach. Did that continue? Um, was that like, did those effects last longer for them or was that just as long as they were getting the, the therapy and then it stopped afterwards? What, what was that, what was that aspect like from that, for that group? 
Um, actually, it lasted. We followed up. We followed them all up for a year. So mm-hmm. even a year later, they were even better because. Wow. And we gave them we gave them a paper and pencil, um, you know, form to fill out to see questions like, do you feel anxious when you go out in public? Um, do you think um, your child has a bright future ahead of them? You know, questions about optimism mm-hmm. and pessimism about their child. And they were even a better a year later because they could see the change. So that the, our program lasted eight weeks. It was eight sessions. After eight weeks, and I, and I have to explain this, but what we did before the training started was we went into their home and we asked them, pick a situation that's a problem for you. And we scripted it out and we, we videoed that several times, three or four times. And then after eight weeks, and by the way, we didn't go into their home to train them how to work with their child. We just taught them how to set up a program, how to design it, how to implement it, but we didn't do that from their home. And then we went back after eight weeks and said, okay, do the situation again and videotape them. And then we came back um, a year later and did it one more time. And the paper and pencil you know, questionnaire said that they were more optimistic we asked them about their um, life satisfaction. They felt better about themselves. They weren't afraid to go out in public, um, as opposed to the other group. But that's when we saw the differences also in how they were behaving towards their children. So the parents who got optimism training were pressing their children. You know, we'll say, you know, no, you're going to set the table, and we're going to have dinner. And if you cry and scream, okay, we'll deal with it. And and one of right. the things that came out of this was this mindfulness. Um, obviously, we want to be mindful when the child is good, but we also wanted the parents to be mindful when the child was not, because uh, the last thing we want a parent to do is to escape the situation. And if people understand about anxiety, if you're in an anxious situation and you leave, you're not likely to go back there again. Uh, we had a mom who brought her uh, kids to her father's house, and um, she had three children with autism. The kids ran in the backyard uh, to go on the swings. There were two swings, three children, two swings. So you can do the math. Uh-huh. Um, I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah. So then she brought them in the house, and it wasn't kid-friendly, and you know they were getting into trouble. And she said, my heart, you know, sort of palpitated. And, I, you know, I felt like I was having a heart attack. So I got out of there. And she goes, now I can't even go back to my dad's house. And what happened was she had a panic attack. And that's what happens, and that's how people end up with agoraphobia, is they put themselves in situations, they panic, or at least some people do it this way, and then they don't go back. And so what we were finding with a lot of the parents who have these anxiety feelings is they avoid situations with their children. They won't go to the store with them. They won't go to the movie theater. And their world starts to close in. And what we're trying to have them do is stay in the moment. Watch them scream. Watch them yell. Maybe even listening to someone in in the supermarket who says, why don't you keep your child under control and don't leave? Because what you want to do is extinguish that anxiety. You want it to go down. Uh-huh. If you escape from it, it won't go down. Um, if you stay in the situation, 
Um, and, and then we give them, I'll, you know, I'll explain later, but we give them some techniques to use so that they can stay in this situation. But that's extremely important because some parents freak out when their kids are acting up, and other parents just go, yep, here we go. You know, I know what yeah. to do. Uh, I know how to handle this, and I'm not going to panic. As you're describing it, I'm, I'm thinking in my head of multiple families that we've worked with, um, you know, the, who have said that exact same thing of, I went to this restaurant, and it was really a bad experience for whatever reason, you know, crying, throwing, yelling, whatever it may be, and now we don't go back there anymore. And just that gradual shrinking of the community until it's, I go to, you know, I go to Costco in the middle of the day on Tuesday. I go to my, you know, my parents' house, and we're at home or in the backyard. And those are the only places we go with our, you know, sons or son or son and daughter or whomever it may be. And it's just heartbreaking to hear that. So it's nice to know that there are options for families to be able to think of things in a different perspective, and be able to help expand that. Right? I mean, the goal is for them to be able to access their whole community um, or the parts that they choose to, at least. Right, and that's where, you know, this concession process comes in, and this is um, we're working on now kind of the theoretical part of this. But once you start to concede, and ex- exactly as you just explained it, your world contracts. And I've worked with, you know, adolescents, adults who have had severe behavior problems who run the group home. You know, they, they, they have to do everything this person wants, otherwise they're going to get hit or they're going to get really injured. So that this over the years has has happened. They've learned I get what I want, um, and mm-hmm. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. And I've always right. you know, this started out me thinking, what can we do early on? Can we do early intervention for the child to prevent them from being a 26 year old adult adult who is severely aggressive and you know hurts people and puts people in the hospital. I don't want to work with them like that. I would rather work with a right. three-year-old um, who might hit me, but it's not going to put me in the hospital. And so what we're finding is the early intervention is also with the family. And we need to catch them early. We need to show them that they, they're capable of doing this. The child is capable of changing. You can deal with thoughts like people are judging me. And, and by the way, sometimes people are judging you. Right. How do I deal with those, those thoughts? Um, you know, I've been in airplanes where a child is screaming and you hear other people talking and it's like, why do they bring their kids on the airplane? And some parents just shrug it off. Some parents have, you know, ways of dealing with it. And other parents, it panics them. And as, as you said, now I'm never going to fly with my child again. I'm never going to go on a bus. I'm never going to go on a train. And so I get limited into what I can do in my life. Well, I want to get into some of the some of the uh, tips that you have. I think in your book you have 10 tips for optimistic parenting. I don't know that we'll have time to get into all of them, although I'd love to. But I'd like to just highlight a, a few of them, if, if you don't mind, and share a little bit of your thoughts for each one. Um, and I want to start with exploring uh, thoughts and feelings. I know that's something that's not necessarily – I think that's a, a new perspective that the field of behavior analysis is taking about, like, our, our emotions and how we're um, how we're feeling and how we can express those feelings. So I'd just love to hear what you mean by that and share a little bit of uh, of that section of the book. Sure. Well, let me just point out that we don't try to change feelings. Um, it's it's kind of like you know my wife always says, oh, you always want people to like you. 
It's like, I, that's the way I feel. <laughs> the issue is the way, the way I think. And how do mm. I change the way I think, which will in turn change the way I feel. And so we never negate someone's feeling. I got anxious. I'm sorry you got anxious. That's terrible. What were you thinking? I was thinking, you know, my mother-in-law is judging me about how I deal with my children. Okay, I can change that. I can get you to think in a different way. And, you know, there are a number of different techniques that we use. One is called distraction. So, um, and this, we didn't develop this. This is Martin Seligman's work. Um, distraction is, can I find a word or phrase that will get me out of this mood, you know, get me out of this feeling? And uh, we had a couple that um, they, they had two kids with autism, and they would be bouncing off the walls and ripping up things. And the parents would kind of bicker between themselves and be anxious about this. and Like, well, why did you do this? How come you gave them candy? And we said, is there some word or phrase that, we can, that you can say to each other that will distract you and make you smile? And the mom thinks for a minute, and she goes, yippee ki And I didn't know what that meant. And the, the facilitator didn't know what that meant. But it turns out, and most people probably do know what it means, but um, there's a movie with Bruce Willis, and when he's about to shoot somebody, he says, yippee ki and then says something I can't say here, um, yep. but has to do with somebody's mother. And it made them laugh. And, and it was just... And they looked at each other when they said it in this session, and they just laughed. And they said, okay, perfect. When everything's crazy, when it's so weird, just say that to each other. We know you're not going to shoot your kids. Promise me you won't shoot your kids. <laughs> um, but, you know, do something that will get you out of that mood and then get back into program mode. mode. Okay, we have a plan. What do we do about this? Um, and not blame each other. So there's a number of things, and that's called distraction. Um, a number of things that we can do to help them get out of the, those moods. Um, we have uh, other techniques that require them to, you know, if they'll say, for example, uh, the mom who had three kids and left her father's house, she said, I felt completely out of control. And that's, by, by the way, one of the major themes that most families feel. I feel out of control. And that's bad, because if you feel out of control, that's what causes people to be depressed. So if a number of important things in your life are out of your control, um, and, you know, this is a perfect time in the world to have people feel like things are out of their control, they get depressed. And, and so how can we look at that, and what we do is go through it uh, rationally and say, okay, what did you do in that situation? Well, the house was, was a kid-friendly. Okay, so that could be under your control. You could next time say, please put these things away. What else could mm-hmm. you do? Well, we didn't give them rules. Okay, that's another thing that's in your control. Well, and then we just left, and that was under your control. So you said I didn't feel under control, but you can change that. And that's mm-hmm. what we try to get them to do is to look at the situation in a different way. Um, and that makes them feel better. If I feel like, okay, I can control this, um, I can feel better about it. Uh, we, had, we had one dad who was, um, 
he had to get his uh, son to the school bus in the morning. And his son was sitting in front of the television. And, you know, he'd walk in the room and go, oh, no, here we go again. Because he knew if I'm going to try to get him to the school bus, he's going to give me a hard time. He was feeling down. He was feeling anxious. Um, and you know what? That made the situation worse because children can pick up on that. They can, mm-hmm. can pick up on negative emotions that you have. So instead, how can we change that? And how can we change it to, all right, he might scream and yell. I'll deal with it. But we're going on the bus. This is how we're doing this. This is how you get reinforced when you get on the bus. We're doing it well. Um, let's think, at the, think about the plan and not just this terrible mood that, oh, no, I don't really want to do this. So that we have a number of those um, kind of techniques that we use for parents to get them to be more optimistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I mean, really just reframing the way you're thinking, right, and, and looking at, you know, I, I, as you're describing, I'm thinking about myself with my kids. Sometimes it's just, you know, for whatever reason we miss bedtime or we're sleeping at my parents' house, whatever it may be, there there are things I feel out of control over. But instead of focusing on the whole situation, maybe I can focus on two or three aspects of it that I can control and stick to the plan that I had created, hopefully, when I was in a calm state and everybody was in a calm state, right? Right. And and we also, you know, encourage parents that if you make a mistake, if you give your child a cookie when he's crying, it's not the end of the world. You can fix that, okay? And, we, and as behaviorists, we've always kind of warned that if you have intermittent reinforcement, then it's going to be stronger. And that's <laughs> not been, been my experience in these situations. You can change it. The other thing right. that we um, encourage the parents to do is to express gratitude. And um, this is a very powerful thing. Um, we, um, you know, I teach a course on positive psychology. And um, one of the exercises in the course is they have to pick somebody that they've always wanted to thank but never did. They have to write them a letter thanking them. They have to meet with them and sit down and have the person read the letter in front of them. This has been one of the most powerful expressions and experiences for my students. Um, I had one student who, who said this. He like wrote a letter to his grandmother. Um, he always wanted to thank his grandmother because she, she raised him. He, she never really did. She read it. She cried. He cried. He came back to my office a year later and said, I just have to tell you about my grandmother. Um, if you remember, she's the one I wrote the letter, gratitude letter to, um, and she's dying. She has a terminal illness. So we had a family meeting with her and said, what kind of ceremony do you want? And she said, I don't care what you do, but read that letter. Hmm. And he said it was the most powerful thing that ever, ever happened. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I cry at a Hallmark commercial. No. No, I I was just going to say I got chills and I'm thinking about it from, you know, from my perspective. Like that's a that's a very touching beautiful story. They can write a letter to a favorite teacher, you know, that right. instead of focusing on the teachers that they didn't like or didn't have a hard time with, a favorite teacher or a therapist or somebody and that makes you feel good and that's an, a part of this. Yeah, I mean, gratitude is so powerful. I've been using it for a while in some of my clinical practices, and I use it with just my family on any given day. And it's, you know, what's something you're grateful for that happened today? And ideally, what's the smallest thing you're grateful for today? Um, You know, I think we think of, like, 
sometimes we think of gratitude as having to be this big momentous thing, but sometimes it's just, you know, I was running late for work and I hit a green light on all three lights on this main street and I got there right. 10 minutes early as opposed to 10 minutes late. And sometimes it's just something as simple as that. But, you know, it's yeah, so easy to get of, focused on all the things that go wrong that sometimes you overlook all the things that go right. Again, it's that reframing, right? And we, we one of the other exercises we give the students is for a week, right to, at night, write down three good things that happened to you that day. And as you said, it could be I just got a parking space, you know. But instead of, my wife and I used to say, we, we used to download when we were alone about our child and all the bad things that happened that day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we always said, it, it, we always talked about him, him with a capital H. Um, and then we said, well, you know, if we're alone together, let's just focus, refocus this. Instead of just saying, you know, he gave me a hard time by, about taking out the garbage, he took it out, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. happy about that. So, so it is, as you said, it's very powerful. And it can, like, again, change the way parents think about the world, about themselves, and gives them the opportunity to persist. Um, I can do this. Things are changing. Things are getting better. Um, and I've got good people to help me. And along those lines, one of the things that I think is really hard and something you bring up in your book is <laughs> this concept of that you are a good parent, right? And, and so can you explain to us that, that like believing that you're a good parent and how that can be impactful? Sure. Um, one of the things that pessimistic parents do have is that, you know, like I made a mistake and I gave him a cookie, I'm a bad parent. And and we will go over that with them and say, okay, okay, you did that. Did you get them dressed for school? Yes. Did you get them breakfast? Yes. Did you get them out the door? Yes. When they came home, were their clothes clean? Were they, you know, there are lots of things that you're good at. And so we all make mistakes. And I used to tell parents, you know, pick your battles. You don't have to be perfect at everything. You know, pick your battles and, you know, you can move on. To the next one, but that's that's an important part is to feel like you're a good parent. And one of the ways we do that too is, you know, they're they're seeing people. And we, when we when I taught um, clinical doctoral students, I said, you guys have this picture in your head that every family out there is perfect, except yours. Hmm. You know, people who you know don't grow up in poverty think that everybody else has the best kids because everybody says nice things. I mean, it, that's what Facebook is. That's one of the right. bad things about Facebook. Everybody's smiling. All the kids are being good. It's, you know, here there's the it's first the filtered world, right? Yeah. Sorry, so, I interrupted you. That's okay. Um, it's not like that. Behind closed doors, parents are fighting with their kids. Uh, <laughs> behind closed doors, some people are sick. Some people are ill. They're, you know, you think the world is perfect except for yours, and it helps. And this is it's a psychological phenomenon, but it helps to realize that other people are in the same boat you are, and and how do the question is how do I deal with it? How do I get to the end of this? Um, I talked to a mom who and dad who, you know, the kid was really difficult, and. He, he got in his teenage years, and he was doing better, but still difficult. And they were lamenting what bad parents they were. They, they were better parents. He would be so difficult. And I said, you know what? If you were bad parents, he'd be in jail. 
He'd be on mm-hmm. drugs. You got him through junior high. You got him through into high school. You know, that's an accomplishment. Don't look at that as, yeah, but he's still difficult. Yeah, he's difficult. But you persisted. And, you know, he's not in trouble. He's not, you know, being kicked out of school. So there are always ways of looking at how I'm being successful at what I do. That's such a great, like, mind, mindset shift for people, I think. it's And... and it's hard, you know. I it's tough. I think you get caught up in the day to day, and I raise my voice, or you know, we we're having pancakes for dinner tonight, or whatever. <laughs> Maybe we get caught up on the things that we didn't do that we miss out on all the things that we do do. Again, it's just that that reframing of of the way we view the circumstance, right? It's changing right. the the lens that we're looking. Right. Um, there's one more that I want us to chat about for just a second, and um, sure it's it's this concept of like believing that your child can change um I, I would imagine you mean with regards to challenging behaviors and learning new skills but tell us more about just that concept of believing your child can change well like i said before a lot of parents believe that if their child has a disability of some kind has some challenge i mean i've done i've worked with um the juvenile arthritis association and their, the families there think that their poor kids can't change because they have, they're in pain, they have all these issues. In the autism, it's really obvious um, that children are difficult. And so then you start to believe, well, it's the disorder and it's nothing I can do about it. And if you believe that, then you're in trouble. Uh, we had one mom who uh, the school actually referred her to us because she, she was very religious. She thought God gave her her daughter who had autism, and her job in life was to give her daughter whatever she wanted. So if the daughter hit her and wanted milk, she got her milk. And if the daughter hit her and wanted something else, she got it for her. And she thought that was my, you know, that was my job in life is to do that. And... Um, the school was furious because here they were trying to deal with her in school, and she, they thought, well, the mom is you know, just giving in to her giving um, everything. and everything she wants. And so when we went through this training, we did a number of the techniques we talked about, and she saw, started to see that her daughter could change. Um, and that, and towards the end, she said, you know, now I see I'm the one in control that I can say, no, if you hit me, I'm not going to give you a hug. Um, and so the daughter stopped hitting her. And then she said, if you don't hit me, I'll give you a hug. And so she, she started to think then, wow, you know, my daughter can change. And that even though she has this disorder and even though she's not going to be perfect, um, she wasn't going to end up, you know, um, probably won't end up driving a car or have some things in life but she can be better behaved and she can maybe have friends. And so, you know, the child is capable of changing. I you know, had parents who said, well, my child doesn't sleep. That's because of the autism. And I said, no, you know, we, we have ha- helped hundreds and hundreds of children with autism sleep better. They may not be perfect, but they can sleep better. And so, right. um, we, we're able to make that change. But it takes, some, like you said, a mindset change there too, that mm-hmm. my ch- child, despite the dis- 
you know, disabilities, despite the difficulties they have, um, we need to, cons- consist- to be consistent and um, try to get people to change. Um, we had, I did this DVD, and um, I had this couple, and the mother, I didn't even meet them before I did, met with them, but they filled out a flyer, and the mother wrote that she was a special ed teacher, and the father was a fireman. And so she knew better about her, the daughter's autism. So when we met, um, it took me all of about 10 minutes to realize the firefighter father knew what he was talking about. And he said, I, I can get her to, to tie her shoes. I can get her to put her you know, pants on. I can get her to do these things. And the mother was saying, no, 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 she's got this disorder. You push her too much. And it was, the, the father was right. You know, I don't, I don't hit her, I don't yell at her, but I push. I, you know, I said, okay, mm-hmm. you can do this, and I'm not going to do it for you. And it took a little while to get the mom to realize that the firefighter, who had no formal training um, in this field, was actually right. And mm-hmm. she, they could get her daughter to do more things despite the disorder she had. That's great. What a great way to, what a great story to kind of, have us think about that as parents and as clinicians, what, what is, you know, how can we be pushing our clients and our sons and daughters for growth and how can we be encouraging them and supporting them and teaching them so that they don't get this, um, you know, learned helplessness of just, Oh, well, this is the most I can do. Right. It's always kind of pushing them for a little bit more, a little bit more, of course, within their scope. And of course, you know, like you said, there's some things that may not be possible, but, I think it's so great for us to be focusing on what we can do and continuing to ex- have high expectations for our sons and daughters and, and the clients that we provide services for because, in my experience, I feel like kids are always trying to meet those expectations, and if we expect them to grow and learn, then they will grow and learn, and they'll do the best that they can, which is more than what we can – that's what we should hope for. And and our goal tools help them to be more independent, you know, so right. that they don't don't have to rely on everybody to do everything for them. So, Dr. Durand, I want to tell people where they can find more about you and, and your research and the books that you're available. Um, where can we find you? Where can we continue to learn from the research that you're doing and, and access your books and your other publications? Well, about me, um, it's easy. The University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, Department of Psychology. Um, you can just Google that and my name, or you can just Google my name, um, and you'll be able to find my page and you know what about my work and then amazon has all my books so um i have a page under my name um and it lists all the books that i have um in fact i'm I'm aging myself here the first book i ever published was on functional communication training and that was 30 years ago so wow it's still it's still out there um, people are still buying it, um, but but the relevant to our conversation, there's a optimistic parenting book that would be listed there, and that's for parents. So that's kind of a self-help right. guide, and so you go through how do you deal with behavior problems, but also how do you deal with these thoughts that may get in the way. Then there's there's actually two other books that are protocols, and. It's called um, Helping the Difficult Child, I think. One's for the therapist and one's for the parent. And so if a professional wants to do this strategy, this eight-week strategy, 
the, those books contain the protocols. So it's each session, what's the goal, you know, what are the outcomes, um, what do you go through. There are forms to fill out for the parents and their accompanying workbook. Um, and so that's, a, that's one way to get, if someone wants to do this formally, um, they can kind of look at those protocols. And th- those are published by Oxford University Press. So you can, I think it's, they're called Helping the Difficult Child. Great. Yeah, we'll, we'll get all those links put up on our show notes um, so that everyone can access them and find them. Um, Dr. Duran, thank you so much for your time and your insight and your ongoing research. It's, it's great to hear that um, you're continuing to push forward and, and support families in all sorts of varieties of ways. So thank you again. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Just a couple of highlights from this week's conversation. One thing that really stood out to me was that this concept of optimistic parenting is really about persistence. Um, it's also about reframing the way that we look at things and finding the growth in our in our child or our children. Um, so often we get caught up in the day-to-day that it's hard to find the successes. Um, so really, you know, I encourage you to find those little growths and start each conversation with a success. You know, I, I find in myself when I talk to my children at dinner, we talk about one good thing that happened, and then the conversation starts from there and goes into a generally a positive direction. So try it. it. Doesn't have to be a massive restructuring of your family or your thought processes or things like that. It's really just changing the way you think. To to use uh, Dr. Duran's terminology, changing the way you think, but not negating the way you feel. Anyway, I hope you find that useful. I hope you uh, learned something today. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or feedback or you'd like to let us know how it's going with some of your positive reframing, certainly send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com and feel free to subscribe and rate us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, stay safe, be well. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.